Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Good evening all and greetings to Mets fans everywhere. Welcome to this evening's uh, spring training special of the Metsian Podcast. There's much to discuss, so without further delay, I want to bring my partners in podcasting crime on the scene. Uh, what can I say? You may know him from a Sullivan, uh, excuse me, a Bedford and Sullivan podcast. You may know him as a film filmmaker. Uh, you may know him as the man formerly known as a converted Mets fan. I know him as a friend. He's coming to us live from the Broadway Diner in Bayonne, New Jersey. Sam Maxwell, everyone. What is going on? Uh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Mike. And, yeah, you know, I, I uh, have been discovering the Jersey Diners, which definitely give uh, both Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, Long Island, uh, as well as the city, a run for its money. I, I always think when, when it comes to the city, I, don't, I think coffee shops more than diners. Well, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because diners, it seems, are a dying breed here in Brooklyn. Anyway, without further delay, my other partner in podcast crime, hailing from Connecticut, about 20 miles north of WWE headquarters, a Beatles connoisseur and a fellow Giants fan. I call him my more sensible brother from another mother. You can get him on Twitter at MetFanRich, Mr. Rich Sparago. Hello, sir. Hey, thank you, Mike. Thank you for a nice introduction. And um, drive by the WWE building both on the way to and from City Field every time I go. And, uh, yeah, you know, talking about diners, um, diners really are a dying breed, aren't they? You know, up here in Connecticut, we certainly have them still, but uh, they've definitely gone by the wayside. You know, Starbucks, it's more coffee shops now. It's more that. It's um, designer coffee much more so than the good old-fashioned diner where you'd, you know, you'd meet your buddies and solve the problems of the world, right? I guess so. <laughs> uh, it, it, maybe they, that is just a sign that we're getting old and things are just passing us by. Times are changing, as they say. 18 days left till opening day, boys. So uh, let's do a quick uh, around, the, around the horn, so to say, before we get to our main topic, which is unavoidable, the health and status of the franchise, Tom Seaver. Uh, we'll get into that a little later in the show, uh, but for now, let's let's you know get as they say on the radio the candy shop stuff out of the way first. I think we start with catcher, uh, and just your gut feelings, guys. And before you even get started on that, just give me your uh, your impressions. Here we are, March tenth. Grapefruit League is uh, you know in full swing. So give me your your impressions of spring training thus far. But uh, let's start with catcher. It's you know your gut feel, and who do you want to go in as the backup? De- Devin Mazzarocco or Travis Darnell? Sam, start. 
you know, we've been watching Travis Darno for a long time. Rich and I have kind of uh, very much voiced that we are a little uh, uh, weary of, of the whole TDA experiment. And um, he's a good kid. It's just unfortunate that he keeps he's, – he's never been able to give himself a chance uh, on, out there. Uh, he had a great 2015 when he was able to come back from injury, and he's a big reason why we made the playoffs. But at this point – I mean, you got Mezzarocco uh, behind a Cy Young Award season with, with Jacob DeGrom as his main catcher. Um, off the top of my head, I, I got to go with uh, Devin Mezzarocco. What's your gut feeling, Rich? Same. Um, you know, today, if anybody watched the game today, that was that was TDA in a nutshell. He comes up and he hits an absolute bomb. I mean, it was it was more like it was a line drive, as Keith Hernandez said. It got out of the ballpark in about a nanosecond. And you're like, wow, th- this guy can hit. You know, th- then, you, then you think about it, but then it's glimpses. Darno is glimpses. And uh, you'll see glimpses of what you thought you were getting when, when the trade went down, uh, Ferrari Dickey. And, but then – you know, but then he gets hurt, and then he goes into these long funks, and then he can't throw anybody out at second base, and you know he's uh, he's not blocking balls in the dirt. But then he's another home run. You know, so, so you get these little glimpses of greatness from him, or or, or promise, probably is a better word. Um, so with all that said, he to me he doesn't profile as a backup catcher. Um, you know, typically backup catchers are good defensively; they're comfortable in the role. They do it once or twice a week, and, and saying that, you're pretty much describing Devin Mezzarocco. I mean, um, he would catch DeGrom every time because DeGrom wants it that way, and your Cy Young winner wants it, you do it. And, you know, Mezzarocco's a hard-nosed kind of a guy. He uh, he can hit a little bit. He's got some pop. Um, you know, defensively, he'll run through a brick wall. He'll block balls in the dirt. He himself also struggles with, you know, throwing runners out sometimes, but – if you look at the two of them, I have to go with Mezzarocco. You know, you have the DeGrom factor and the fact that he just profiles better as a backup catcher, and maybe you could get something for a TDA. He'd have to go. You can't keep all three of them, in my opinion. Uh, I'll borrow a little bit from the both of you. Uh, Sam, you know, I'm a little tired of the TDA experiment as well. And, and Rich, from you, uh, defensively, he would be my choice as well. First base. Let me put it to you this way. Peter Alonso hit a, 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 another dinger over the Green Monster Jr. Uh, all things being equal, let's say him and, and, and Dom Smith have fine, outstanding springs. Does Dom Smith get the nod over Alonso uh, for seniority's sake, Sam? That's a great question. I mean, I'm somebody who has a, a customized Dom Smith T-shirt, so I've been rooting for Dom ever since he was drafted. Uh, and that, oh God, I don't know how to answer that properly because, you know, there's been it's been the weight issue, it's been the attitude issue, uh, it's been all these different things. Um, and you got to wonder, though, I'm not sure exactly what the options are with Dom Smith, and, and maybe one of you can, can help me out since I unfortunately don't have Internet right now. Uh, but I, I'd still have to say, I mean, Pete Alonso has become such the golden boy that I, I still think the only thing that would stop it is if, if we're talking Super 2, and 
they're finally just like, all right, Dom, you had a great spring. You've been working your ass off for the last few years, uh, especially the last two years. Show us what you got in September. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Pete Alonso's coming up once his super suit, suit status clears. That's the only thing I can think about. Because otherwise, like, it's just the trendiest thing is Peter Alonso right now. You know, whether or not I agree with it, uh, I, you know, I, I want the best for the Mets. That's the bottom line. So, I really, I want Dom Smith to succeed, uh, but I could see the Super 2 status getting in the way. That's a great point. I haven't looked into that. You know, uh, if you know that for sure, I, that's an excellent point. Uh, so, Rich, same question. Now, Dominic Smith, he's having a productive season, you know, a productive great Grapefruit League to date. Same question. Does Dominic Smith get seniority over Alonzo? I don't think so. I, I, I will go with what Sam said. I think Pete Alonzo is the fair-haired boy of the organization right now. I think, uh, hard as it is to say this about a guy who's never spent a day in the major leagues, it might be his job to lose. And Brody Van Wagenen came out, you know, to, to the point, yes, that that is a real thing about service time, but he came out and, and he has said a couple of times that if Pete Alonso wins the job, it doesn't matter about the extra year of team control that he'll bring him north. So um, when I look at Dom Smith, you have a guy who's carrying around some baggage, you know, the, like Sam said, the weight, the attitude, the basically not successful time in the major leagues when he has had his opportunities, although he did show some flashes, to be fair. But, you know, he's carrying around that baggage, and, and it just seems like the bright light is shining on Pete Alonso. The fans want Pete Alonso, and he's hitting these. Enormous, I mean, I was watching that game yesterday. He hit it completely out of JetBlue Park. He's just the sexy choice now, you know, with what he did in AAA and what he did in the Fall League and all of that. And, um and Brody's like, look, it's all about winning. It's not about an extra year of control. So you put all that on the table, everything I just said on the table, I, I can't see Dom Smith beating Pete Alonso out for the job. I really can't. And if you remember, one of Brody's first acts as general manager was to go down and speak with him. Remember? Yes. So I find that, yeah, I find right. that very interesting. Yeah, so uh, let's move on over to second base. It's funny. No news is good news, right? We haven't we haven't heard anything about Robinson Cano, negative or otherwise. So I I, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, that and you know, unfortunately, T.J. Rivera has been released. Uh, I hate to see that happen, uh, being that he's a, a native New Yorker. But other than that, you know, baseball it is what it is. So, Chance, you want to start with that one? Yeah, let's start with the whole T.J. Rivera thing. Obviously, I, I always root for a, a hometown boy to succeed, especially when he hits the way T.J. Rivera was. It's one of those contact things. He he got the barrel to the ball. And the the thing is is that we've talked about the plethora of infielders and, and ones who haven't been injured for the last two years with Tommy John surgery. He's apparently been having trouble getting into game shape, even though he's quoted as saying that he's in the best, you know, one of those, I'm in the best shape of my life type of things. Um, uh, and I think he said he's in the best shape he's been in a long time. But when you look at it, it, the writing's on the wall. The move totally makes sense with the, the plethora of infielders they have. And, and uh, this is one moment where I have to say, you know, as surprising as uh, people found it when, when it happened, I didn't find it all that surprising at all. And and 
you kind of act, have to, in some fashion, applaud the move because we're not thinking about the emotional. Brody's not thinking about the emotional element of it. He's doing what's necessary to free up a roster space that that could go to Danny Espinoza, somebody who has more experience uh, having major league success. So, no, I I don't think that it, it, it was surprising at all, uh, and and I don't necessarily, as, you know, I wish T.J. Rivera the best. He's a good kid. You can tell he's a good kid. What's funny is, like, he's probably only, at this point, you know, I'm talking like, like he's, you know, this, this kid, and he's probably only, like, three years younger than me. But um, going to Cano real quick, I remember a lot of people always dogged him for maybe sometimes he, he would run a little slow to first base. But the thing that I always heard was, you know, how, how uh, free and easy he was in second base and that he, 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 you know, was lazy out there. But the way – watching – you know, we, we've had the chance as New York baseball fans to see Cano in action one way or the other, even if we're not Yankee fans. And the thing I always found about Robinson Cano is he's just that good. He gets to the ball. He's smooth. He's just he's just so he, he just glides over to the ball. I and and if he can stay healthy, and he still has anything that he he has had over the course of his career, you know we could be we could be looking at a, a sleeper success over at second base. Rich, take us up the middle with shortstop. Robinson Cano, T.J. Rivera, and start us with Ahmed Rosario. His injury turned out being nothing much. He's back. He hit a home run. Uh, so take it away. Well, you know, Cano so far, and, you know, geez, we're talking about a thimble full of, of exposure here as a Met, but Cano so far is doing exactly what we could have hoped for. You know, he, he's hitting the ball. He's going the other way a lot. Uh, Keith noted that uh, the other day when the thing was Friday. He noted that Cano's going the other way a lot. He hit an absolute beautiful home run in, I think it was also Friday's game, with that incredible swing of his. You know, playing solid defense. Uh, I think he's hitting like 310, 315 over the spring. So that's what the Mets wanted when they got him. You know, a guy who would – give you good defense, hit the ball over the field, you know, show the power. That just comes naturally for him. So um, the key with Cano is going to be to not, you know, to remember he's 36, and I know that that's the plan. They want him to play about 130 games and just do that. You know, just please keep this guy healthy because this guy's a force. This guy is an absolute force when he's at the plate. Uh, T.J. Rivera, I feel sorry for him. I mean, you know, you hate to see anybody lose a job because of an injury. Tommy John is so, you know, you hear about it, Matt Weeders, other players, um, you know, Didi Gregorius, but it's still fairly uncommon for a position player. So it's like, oh, man, that sucks, a poor guy. Um, and he just couldn't come back, and you know he was trying because of his, his you know, his career and, and all of that he's that kind of a guy he's a scrappy kind of a guy so you know the guy was busting his ass to to get healthy and it just didn't happen so you feel bad for him not so, like sam said i'm not surprised he was released they have way too many bodies so you wish him well and then rosario look i think he's a star in the making i think he absolutely will be a star you saw the second half last year he was stealing bases and he was hitting the ball with authority playing good defense. He's very smooth out there. You know, he looked great today. So uh, what I worry about is what we saw Monday. You know, when he got hit in the hand, and 
first thing I was thinking is, oh, that's a broken bone. He'll be out for two months, and who's going to play shortstop? Well, you have Echeverria, but there's a you know kind of a drop off there. So Rosario, in summary, I think he's a star in the making. Um, I fully expect that for him, and I just hope he stays healthy, uh, like anybody else. I I have to tell you, I I was I was mopping my brow a little when he got hit. I was really worried, but you know, thank goodness he's okay. Uh, I was worried as well, and I, I, and I echo your sentiments more. Uh, Sam, third base. I, I'm going to play a little trick on you. Last week we discussed the injuries to Jed Lowry and Todd Frazier. Now, Jeff McNeil, is he about to become the next Wilma Flores in the sense that they're going to jerk him around from position to position? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it might be a blessing in disguise because uh, I loved his defense out there wherever he was playing. I mean, he was playing second base last year, but, um, you know, we haven't seen him at third base as much as, as we've seen him at second base. But, you know, uh, one one way or the other, it, it, Jed Lowry, he's had an injury history. Todd Frazier, he's had an injury history. And we were – Obviously, hoping that that when the Jed Lowry signing, he was coming off of an insane year. But uh, you know, woe is us, as they say. Um, I I hope that he doesn't become. I think he's going to be a better fielder than Wilmer Flores ever was, and so that alone will make it. You know, I, I don't think the reason why they were jerking Wilmer Flores around was basically Wilmer Flores couldn't claim a spot. He wasn't good defensively anywhere. I don't see that yet from Jeff McNeil. You know, he was really solid at second base last year, better than I've ever seen Wilmer Flores be in the infield. So one way or the other, I you know, I was a little w- uh, wary of the fact that they were trying him in the outfield uh, because this kid can hit, and I just want him to hit. You know, just, just go put him somewhere so he can hit. One way or the other, um, and that, that would be the only concern about jerking him around. But other than that, you know, Wilmer Flores made, you know, part of the reason why his bed was made the way it was was because he just was terrible defensively no matter where you put him. And I just don't see that with McNeil. Rich, what say you? Yeah, I like the fact that McNeil might be in the infield. I know it's unfortunate Frazier's injury is what's causing it, but you know, Mike, you and I have talked about this. I don't to get his bat in the lineup and put him in the outfield. Oh, you know, not my favorite thing to do. The fact that he can now play third base and you get that good bat in the lineup, um, I think it kind of worked out. You know, McNeil can hit. Let's face it, he can hit. And um, and when Frazier comes back, if you have to figure something out, you figure something out. But the current situation, I think, is actually preferable to the plan, where you have you have you have uh, McNeil playing the infield, which is where he belongs. You have his bat in the lineup, and will he be the next Wilmer Flores and all of that? Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna throw a different one at you, Mike. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say he's the next Ben Zobrist. You know, Ben Zobrist plays a lot of positions. He plays them all, as far as I could tell, adequately. He's not bad at any of them. Certainly he's a better second base than anything else. But um, he's played shortstop in his career. I know they've played him a little bit at third, a lot of second, some outfield. So maybe the Mets have a Ben Zobrist, a guy who can play adequately at all positions, maybe a little bit above average at some. And he's in. He doesn't embarrass you in the field. He's not a liability, and he's in there for his bat. And maybe that's what the Mets have. 
Maybe they have a younger version of Ben Zobrist. And they, they kind of look alike when you think about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick about the bullpen, because I want to get into uh, – BBW's hires as special advisors real quick. Uh, but Kyle Dowdy, Kyle Dowdy, uh, he's not looking so good. And, he, you know, he has Rule 5 and 25-man uh, 25 25 roster implications. How important is he to the bullpen, Sam? You know, I, I have to admit, I'm not really brushed up on this Rule 5 pick uh, right now. And if he's not doing well, Well, they have, then... to, keep, they have to keep him on the 25-man roster or else relinquish him back to the, his originating yes. team. Yes. And, I, you know, I this is why these guys get exposed for Rule 5, is, is that they they generally, they've showed flashes before, but they they not enough to keep protected after a certain amount of time. Um and so I'm. I don't think he's. I mean, the the one concern I have is that I saw that Drew Smith uh, was uh, got injured, and he's being uh, rushed back to New York to see see what's going on. Um, and so uh, the the only concern is the bodies. But at the same time, if he's not performing well, you know, he better get his act together. Otherwise, he's going to have to go to the the, the team that uh, gave him up. Rich. Yeah, I think of him as. Um as being sort of window dressing. I mean, I, famous last words, but I, I think the bullpen is pretty solid. And if, if Dowdy doesn't make any SV return, so be it. I mean, these guys, if you really think about it, how many Rule 5 picks do you know really work out for the team that, that, that takes them? There are a few. There are certainly a few. Um, but remember Brad, Brad Ismus or um, <laughs> Brad, Brad Ismus. Right? I, and it's like, okay, there's a reason why these guys aren't protected, you know, and, and they haven't, and they find themselves subject to the Rule 5 draft. Now, sometimes it could be a very good team that doesn't have a spot, but there's probably a reason why this guy was available. And, and, and if he doesn't do well and he has to go back, I'll go to, I'll go to battle with the bullpen they have without, without Kyle Dowdy. Can I just say this, Mike, before you, pick up, before you pick back up, Mike, about it? There's only one person that I can think of that should have never been exposed in the Rule 5, and we're going to be talking about him very soon. Yeah, far. exactly. It was, it was uh, actually a different, yeah. yeah, right, same basic concept, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that said, uh, you know, I think that's a wrap on the players, unless there's one particular player that stands out that we haven't spoken about yet. Sam, do you have a player in mind? Not 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 off the top of my head, no. I mean, you know, 18 days. Let's do this. Let's go, guys. Sam? I, I mean, do. I have one. Yeah, go for it. Um, I wanted to ask you guys your opinion on um, on Edwin Diaz and him not signing the contract and, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, I shouldn't say pouting, but, you know, but saying, look, this is, this is BS and I don't want to sign this. Now, I know – He's not the first person in Mets history to do that, not the, certainly not the first person in baseball history. But it is interesting. You know, you pick this guy up, American League leader in saves. He comes over, and, you know, the team does what the team has a right to do, which is put the contract in front of him for what they have to pay him. And he's not happy. He doesn't sign it. He'll get over it, I'm sure, and he has a lot of years ahead of him to, to make a lot of money. Hopefully those are with the Mets, but – what do you guys think about that? Do you think the Mets could have made a show and given him a little bit more than the required amount, or or do you not care and say, look, dude, you know that's why teams have controls, just sign it and shut up, or not a big deal? I was wondering what you guys think about it. I think that's a mere formality. It's one of those, uh, you know, 
uh, quirks of baseball. That's strictly a union uh, ownership thing, uh, and it happens far more often than, than you know, people report. Uh, it's just one of those things. It's, it's just inherent in the union business relationship. That's more agent influence thing- than anything else. I totally get that, and I was thinking the same thing. But at the same time, you know, these contract stuff with the Mets just irk me, especially with the whole DeGrom thing hanging over everybody. Uh, the DeGrom thing, is anybody surprised the deal hasn't been struck yet, or is that something they can put off? Quickly, Rich. Not surprised. Spring training has two and a half more weeks, and I still think they'll get something done. I think DeGrom wants to be here. I think the Mets want him here. The whole Brody factor, you know, we've talked about that ad nauseum. I think something will get done. Sam, the, only concern, the, only, the only concern is that there's just been one extension after the other throughout the entire league. And, you know, it just reeks of the Mets not wanting to negotiate with him after his, the, 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 one of the greatest seasons of all time. Uh, at, you know, the win-loss notwithstanding. Um, that, that's the only thing that irks me about it, is this idea is like, why why negotiate at, at the highest end? He's bound to not have, he's bound to regress, even if that's to a two ERA. Uh, I think it's, it's asinine, and I'm, I'm all about, I understand where some fans come in with the fact that he's 31 years old, but I, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and you you need some semblance of of uh, team cohesion over the course of of five to ten years. So that that's my take on it. And until I see that they've actually signed it, I'm going to be a little concerned. Well, right now I, I say you know capitalism rules the day. This this is just business. Uh, I, I see it as nothing more, nothing less for the moment. As we get deeper into this, you know, obviously my opinion is going to change. Let's uh, transition real quickly to Brody Van Wagenen's most recent hires. Uh, Al Weider, John Franco, and Jessica Mendoza are now special advisors to the Mets. Uh, I still don't know what to make of it, but I'll just say this. Bob Raceman of the New York Daily News put it this way. He's taking control of the Mets' narrative. I find that fascinating. Sam. That's a great. That's a great point. Uh, Brody right now is uh, you know out front, and um, I'm going to loop back around and ask you guys a question of, of just little random tidbits I saw about Franco. Uh, but I wanted I wanted to bring up Jessica Mendoza uh, specifically. It just it, it it pisses me off that people will automatically say something like you know. Same old Mets. This is a ridiculous hire. It's all for show. Uh, what does she have to offer? And you know, I know some people have hated on the the uh, um, commentating that she's done, but I think it's clear that she knows her stuff and she's a good baseball mind. And I, I guess I'll pass it over to Rich regarding that and what his take is. I mean, um, I forget exactly what Brody uh, feels that she can help with, uh, uh, but. It, I bought it, basically. What Brody was selling, I bought in, in the pitch about why Jessica Mendoza is uh, good to have uh, on the field, uh, you know, in, in off the field, excuse me. Rich. Well, I love it. I mean, um, 
as it relates to Jessica Mendoza, you have a young person, 38 years old, coming in, and I think that's good. I think um, there's, you know, there's the product on the field, which she will help with, and there's also perceptions. And, you know, the Mets are infusing some youth into their front office. You know, Brody himself, I think he's 44, uh, certainly puts him as one of the younger GMs around. And, and Jessica Mendoza at 38, you know, understands the – the way the game is now and, you know, and maybe how the game is perceived now by, um, by the people to whom they're trying to market the sport. So um, great hire there. And, and let's think about Al Leiter for a minute. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the Mets, he was in the Yankees booth and the Mets just snagged the guy. You know, Al Leiter, granted, he threw that great game against the Reds and granted he had a couple of good years as a Met, but he came up as a Yankee He's been in the Yankees booth. He wears the pinstripes, basically. When you think about Al Leiter, I, I think most people think of him as a Yankee, and especially now. And the Mets got him away from the Yankees to, to, be, a, to be in their front office. I think that's great. And, and I, I do agree with Raceman. You know, the Mets are taking control of the narrative. They're like, look, you know, we like this guy, and we're not, gonna be, we're not afraid of you guys. If we want to hire him and he wants to come, we're going to take him, you know, and, and great. They kind of stuck it in the Yankees' face a little bit, which is wonderful. So between that and Mendoza, you know, I I think they're both great. John Franco, I mean, you, you know, he's kind of just here. He's always around. You know, he um, I'm not sure. I guess now his his role's official, but it always seems like Franco is um, is around the Mets. So to me, that was sort of like a formalization of something that I always viewed as happening informally. But I I, I think it's I think. Wonderful, all three of those moves. So, uh, Mike, before you, Mike, Mike, before you take it uh, from there, I just saw something where somebody was talking, like, like Franco was kind of a, an asshole in the clubhouse, and and that he, you know, he he's he's a schmuck basically. And I, you know, I think personally, I think it's most likely just people spouting stuff off on Twitter, but. You know, I'll start with you, Mike, and then you could you could take it from there. Like, have you heard anything? And you know, he's a Brooklyn boy. So, what what is your take on on the whole Franco thing? I know a lot of people think he was overrated to begin with. I heard those rumors. Don't know what to make of them. Uh, but we're definitely talking to him about a different era. Uh, you know, Brody Van Wagen wasn't around for those days, so maybe he sees something in John Franco that can potentially help the Mets. Uh, He's been one of those players who's who hasn't necessarily been completely divorced from the team. Uh, he's been around, unlike others. Uh, so I I don't know what to make of it. I I, I just found what Bob Raceman, you know, how he coined it. I, I just found that fascinating. Mets are taking or Brody taking control of the Mets narrative. It's the only real thing I, I I take away from this. I, I I don't know what to make of special advisors. I really don't. I mean, A-Rod's a special advisor for the Yankees, or was, if he's still on the books. And, you know, this, the Mets aren't the only team to do this, and just don't know what the uh, what the end game is there, other than being, you know, a liaison, uh, you know, and I was reading uh, perhaps even a spy. <laughs> I, I don't know. So uh, I'm a little confused about the whole thing. I, it's not that I have a, a problem with any individual, it's just I, I don't know what the end game is, you know. But then again, I'm very happy with all the other front office hires. So I'm not about to complain about this. I'm just a little confused about it. That's all. Uh, weird. 
you know, and the more I ponder it, the longer I'll go. So, so it's really time to get over to the more serious side of the uh, of tonight's subject matter. Uh, Tom Seaver. Yeah. And, and I'm and sad. Go, go ahead, Sam. No, 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 please, Mike, uh, take it from there, and then and then I'll do it, my thing. Well, 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 you know, this is sad to speak of. By, by no means do I want to make the mistake of eulogizing the man. He's not dead. He's, he's alive and very well. Tom Seaver and his family broke the news in a statement issued through the Hall of Fame on Thursday uh, that as a result of his condition, the man we call the franchise will be retiring from public life. His family says Tom will continue working from their California home and on his vineyard. You know, so I'll leave it at that. Like I said, the news broke Thursday, and and Sam, I think I think you have the most appropriate way to to really delve into the subject matter. So go ahead. So a few weeks ago, uh, we were lucky enough to have Skip Lockwood, who was the Mets closer from 1975 to 1979 on the podcast, and uh, he wrote an incredible book called Inside Pitch uh, that I believe every baseball fan, let alone Mets fans, need to read. And he had a a section about Tom that I think sums it up, and and, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and start from there. Every quality pitcher I ever met focused completely on preparedness, mentally and physically. Jim Palmer, in his book, The Art of Pitching, shared, when I was pitching good, I could almost see where the ball would go before I threw it. At the top of his game, Sandy Koufax talked about pitching as being an extension of his body. From my personal perspective, the best pitcher in the National League, and maybe the best pitcher in all of baseball, was Tom Seaver. Immensely talented, Tom was a, a student of the game. He believed that the velocity, movement, and location of your pitches could vary greatly from outing to outing. Even a talented, dedicated pitcher will inevitably have to endure a slump. A pitcher needed to battle his way through it and limit the damage to a game or two. When you start to struggle, you should analyze your motion in a mirror. A pitcher must be sufficiently objective to detect and compensate for these differences. He believed that averages always, but that a good hitter sometimes will hit good pitching. He stressed certain things, avoid walks, Get the first out of an inning. Don't let the batter make contact with the meat of the bat, and don't let the batter claim both sides of the plate. I had the trouble. I I had trouble handling my emotions in between innings. Typically, I would come in from inning from an inning and pace the runway leading to the locker room until I got a chance to go back out. The whole process of trying to stay so quote unquote up was exhausting, <clears throat> and I was having difficulty throwing strikes when I returned to the mound. Every pitcher has to find his own method of dealing with time between innings. A passive-aggressive starter with the pilots likes to spend the time glaring out at his opponents. A pitcher with the Brewers opted to play cards down in the runway. One of my Angels teammates meditated in between innings. I asked Seaver what he did. Tom reminded me of an old childhood game we played in the schoolyard, red light, green light. He said that when he went out to the mound and crossed the foul line, he said green light to himself, meaning that it's time to step on the gas. When he walked off the mound in between innings, he'd call red light, put off the gas to himself. So in between innings, he was off duty. Late in the season, the Mets were in Chicago for a midweek series with the Cubs. The game was scheduled as an afternoon game, and the phone in my hotel room rang at 9 o'clock in the morning, the familiar voice on the other end of the line demanding that I get my butt out of bed. Quote, we're going to the Art Institute to see something you will never forget, end quote, beckoned Seaver. Meet you in the lobby in 20 minutes. Tom was a complicated person with many diverse interests. One was wine, which he has 
successfully pursued with great passion after his baseball career. He collected dirt from the various fields in the league for research. He studied various forms of art, and he loved going to museums around the league. We decided that in the time remaining in the season, he and I were going to see as many museums as we could fit in. We hailed a cab. Tom directed the Art Institute of Chicago. The Chicago Art Institute had acquired a masterpiece of Claude Monet, Waterloo. Fever was my museum guide. We, would, we wound our way up to the third floor, which was dedicated to this one work of art. The inscription underneath the painting said, quote, One instant, one aspect of nature contains it all, end quote. Monet produced this enormous mural at his home in Giverney. The mural was really a series of murals with a single timeless mo- motif, a single focal point flower garden or a smaller pond spanned by a Japanese footbridge. Sieber studied this painting in college, and he was intrigued to see it in person. We turned the corner, and the Monet stood before us. A museum guide related, quote, In his first water lily series, Monet painted the pond environment with its water lilies, bridge, and trees neatly divided by a fixed horizon. Over time, he became less and less concerned with conventional pictorial space. By the time he painted his third group of these works, he had completely done away with the horizon line altogether, end quote. Tom stopped to see if I was paying attention, and the guide continued. Quote, he created something called a, spa- a spatially ambiguous canvas, as if he was looking down at it, focused solely on the surface of the pond with its cluster of plants floating amidst the reflection of sky and trees, end quote. It was incredibly beautiful. Blues were vivid. The water was moving. I felt like I was dripping wet inside the canvas. The whole thing was alive. It took my breath away. We sat on one of the benches in front. Other patrons clustered behind. Always a relative concept, time appeared to stand still. I was lost in the moment. Tom woke me up. Quote, we've got to get, go- we've got, to get going back. In this arena, it might be fine to contemplate the relativity of time, but if we don't make it to the stadium for warm-ups, we'll both be fine, end quote. Tom, in his own way, painted a canvas, and that was bounded by bases and wooden fences less spatially indifferent. Saber believes that a fastball needed dimension and depth. It needed to be thrown through the catcher, not to the catcher. And I, uh, perf- I think that basically sums up all you need to know about Tom Saber. Well said. Well done by you. Well said by Skip Lockwood. Rich, uh, you know, retiring from public life is a rather delicate way of putting it. You know, dementia is a scary word. It's the general term. Talking about uh, memory, uh, thinking and reasoning it can affect physical performance and even behavior. Uh, and, and the reports are he's in, in an advanced stage. So wherever you want to go with this, Rich, by all means. Well, you know, I don't know if you guys have experienced that, you know, in your families and such. I have. and um, Likewise, likewise. I, you know, yeah, likewise. It's it's probably the most difficult thing, you know, you, you, well, I shouldn't say the most, but it's a very difficult thing because, the person is very much physically alive, you know, and, and, and could actually be quite vibrant. But when the person doesn't remember you or remember things and, you know, it's like the, it's like the vitality is there, but it's a different person in the body. And, and when it's someone close to you, it, it's very difficult to deal with. And I feel for the Seaver family because, you know what, 
no matter who you were, you know, you were a professional athlete, you were an actor, a rock star, whatever you were, you have a family and you're human, and and the people who are closest to you and have to watch this, and um, and also I don't know what stage he's in, but dementia goes in very. It's like we looked it up because we had it in our family, and it goes in very distinct stages. And there's a stage where the person suffering from it becomes very angry because they know that they're not themselves. They don't know why the hell they're not themselves. Like they don't, they, they could feel themselves slipping away. And I don't know if that's where Seaver is or, or if he's past that stage now, but um, it's very difficult for the patient, very difficult for the family and caregivers. And, you know, all of us and, and probably everybody who would ever listen to this never met the man. Um, but, you feel bad for him as a human being. And the fact that we won't see him anymore, we won't see him. Now, we're not eulogizing. We're saying we won't see him at City Field. He won't be there this summer when uh, that day in July, they're honoring the the 50th year of the 69 Mets. He won't be able to be there. And And if the Mets should win the World Series, God willing, he won't be at a parade, you know, to to wave and, you know, and hand them the trophy or whatever and be part of the franchise that he helped put on the map. So it, 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 it hits from all angles. You know, it's like, a, it's think about a target, right? And it's got all these arrows coming at it. You have the family, you have the person, you have us as fans aren't going to see our guy anymore. Um, all of that. It just, it's hitting a lot of people, whether it's on a personal level or on a sports level or whatever level, it, it's a, it's a really terrible thing. You know, it, it is. And, um, and to Seaver's wife, you know, Nancy Seaver and, and their grandkids and all that and their families, I just, I don't wish it on anybody, celebrity or not, and I feel bad for them. That's that's what I have to say. Yeah, I, I've been exposed to it. Sam, I'm sure you've been exposed to it as well. Buddy Harrelson is also suffering from Alzheimer's, and we know Ed Cranfield is well. He still needs a kidney. Uh, and there are much... You know, as you say, Rich, this is the 50th anniversary of the 69 Mets. Uh, you know, I don't know how many players they're expecting to show up, perhaps 15, 16, 17. I'm not quite sure what the number is, but let's not forget some of the players who passed away. You know, uh, and Charles most recently, Don Flindenin, Tommy Agee, Tug McGraw. And, and I guess my point here is that, sure, let's introduce – you know, a statue dedicated to Tom Seaver and for the conversation. Uh, but more importantly, I mean, I think the onus is to get this done while he's still with us. Now, I'll say that, you know, we know Cranepool on, on Twitter, uh, you know, uh, from, from his blog and whatnot, and he put out a cryptic, rather cryptic uh, tweet out. And perhaps... You know, the Mets are in the process of, in fact, getting this done. Uh, You know, clamoring for a statue is suddenly all the rage. But, Rich, as you know, while the sentiment is correct, the timing is a little off because older fans like you and I, those of us, you know, whom actually witnessed his greatness on the mound, we've been demanding a statue for at least 20 years now. He was elected into baseball's Hall of Fame in 92 and the emotional grievance was filed shortly thereafter. Uh, but I will say this. While criticizing the Wilpons has become a pastime of sorts, Nelson Doubleday still deserves his 
uh, you know, share of blame as well because he remained on as partner for at least another 10 years beyond Siva's enshrinement. So I'm, I'm not looking to pick a fight here, but if there's a time to get it done, the upcoming 50th anniversary uh, is obviously the most appropriate time to reconcile this long-standing and to some extent unforgivable oversight. Sam. Something that the bobblehead got right was the dirt on the knee. And, you know, I obviously am not lucky enough to have seen Tom Seaver pitch, and, and lucky for Mets fans, they saw him in two different generations because the, they, they were able to get Tom Seaver back for a year. And uh, and I'll pass it over to you, Rich. You'd have to say that, that the, the statue... There, it could be in so many different motions of him in the middle of pitching. It has to be uh, some sort of, of, of actual mid-motion, I, I, would, I would believe. Do you think that it, it, it's got to be the knee scraping? You know, he, he, that, that's just, when I think about it, I always think about that dirt on the knee with the bobblehead. And, and I'm just wondering where, where you are with that. Yeah, I mean, the whole statue thing, um, you know, what, what can you say that hasn't been said already? The, o- the only thing I can say is this. Um, should it have been there a long time ago? Of course, right? I mean, it's not even a question. Um, but the Mets are saying that the leaking now is that they were planning on doing a statue anyway. They were going to do something special for him, and you, know, you get the little reports linking out that the Mets claim that you know before this announcement they had a big thing planned for the '69 Mets and focusing on Seaver, which you know may have included a statue. Nobody really knows. Um, but I'll say this: I'm going to hope and and just in my mind until this notion is shattered, I'm going to say to myself. They were going to do a statue. They were going to do a statue because if it took this for it to happen, bad, bad shame on them, you know, shame on them. If that's the case, and I'm going to say it's not. I'm going to say I'm going to believe it. I'm going to be, I'm going to take things at face value and say that they were planning something major because certainly no, they know that the fans have been screaming for it. So, okay, I mean, tell me if you guys are something else, but but from the facts that I've been able to gather would be. The Mets say, yeah, you know, it's a terrible thing with Seaver. We were planning on doing the 69 Mets thing, which will go forward. We were going to do something special for Tom, and we'll continue forward with that, um, even though he won't be here. Okay. And a lot of people are reading into that to mean that they were going to do a statue well before this announcement. So if that's the case, I'll, I'll be Pollyanna and say better late than never. Fine. Go for it. Um, and I'm just going to sit here and hope that, it wasn't because of the announcement that they've decided to do something that we all know should have been done. You know, I'll, I'll jump in here as well. Um, you know, we've, we've been trying to give the Will Fonds their due uh, because we don't give them anything ever. And uh, it's just, but one thing after the other, I mean, just, Color me skeptical if I don't believe that they had anything planned. Because one example after the other of their tone deafness when it comes to the Mets history is, is just rampant. And 
I, I've been lucky enough to meet Ed Cranepole, and, and I talked to him, not even like Ed Cranepole. He talked to me like a fellow fan, and you know, he he has had his issues with the Wilpons, but it was a direct, you know, he I, I can't exactly quote him, but he's not a fan of the Wilpons. Bottom line, and. Uh, I, I've heard that he tried to even put an ownership group together back in 1980, uh, and it unfortunately didn't work out. And it's just one of those shoulda, woulda, coulda things. Like what? It's one of those hypotheticals. Like what could have been? Who knows how, what kind of owner Ed Cranepole would have been? The one thing I can tell about Ed Cranepole is that he understands the fans and he gets Mets history. And it just it keeps one moment it, it's just we're, we run around in circles about our exacerbation with the Wilpons and the only person in New York that can give them a run for their money for worst ownership uh, there's news right now about him kicking a fan out for saying selling the team sell the team with James Dolan so at, I guess the best I thing I can say about the Wilpons is at least they're not uh, a tyrant like James Dolan is but the tone deafness it's just one moment after the other, and this isn't necessarily what we should be talking about in, in the moment of celebrating Seaver, even though we're not eulogizing him. But it just brings up all these different issues. You know, Seaver's not – obviously, you, you and I, Mike, uh, and, and, and Rich, we always talk about Payson, Seaver, Hodges. So, somebody mentioned Hodges. Why isn't there a statue for Hodges? You know, it's, this franchise is still reeling from his death as far as I'm concerned. And unfortunately, this news about the dementia just brings all of these issues back up. It, it, it's sad from the dementia perspective, but it's just, it's sad that we even have to have this talk, that we're not just talking about visiting, bringing, you know, he's got dementia. Let's, let's make sure that we're educating our kids when we take them to the stadium and go to the statue that's already there and talk about who Tom Seaver is in 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 these amazing terms. It's 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 the whole thing's just it's it's all sad all around. Rich, I'm I'm so with you as as with you, Sam. I I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this well. Sometimes when you get so frustrated, you see if this news didn't break out. And we thought that, you know, Tom Seaver was relatively well. Then it would be okay to any to have, to have any kind of conversations regarding the little punk. We could be as derisive as we wanted to be. But now this situation arises. And sometimes you just have to set priorities. And for as much as I'd like to rile against them, I would just say, Get it done, and I won't say a word. And I won't, I, I won't ever bring it up that it was late, this, that, or the other. Just get it done because it's the right thing to do. Put aside any and all agendas and just do it. I, I, I don't know if that satisfactorily you know, explains what it is I'm feeling. But sometimes when when you have feuding parties, in this case, fans versus ownership, everyone silence, everyone lays down their pitchforks and torches and, and 
you know, you just come together for the common good, just get it done, and I won't ever bring it up. I won't ever bring it up. And then perhaps we move forward. I don't know. Rich, you interpret that for me. I I think that's right, Mike. I I think, you know, again, was it planned? Was it not? You know, who cares in the end of the day? Get it done, and then we'll take it from there as fans. We'll be happy with it. You know, the organization will have done the right thing. And the pissing match of, you know, was it planned or not, and why wasn't it done in 19, you know, over at Shea in 1995 or whatever, all that goes away. It's done. It's there. Um, and to me, that that's going to be the most important thing is that it's finally done. And then the other thing I'll throw into conversation here, I saw a little bit of a debate on Twitter today, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Where would you put it um, if, if it is a statue? Because we don't even 100% know that it is. We're just hearing rumors. Um, where would you put it? It's an interesting question. Somebody said it should be in the rotunda. Uh, it was Keith said it during the broadcast. Say it was it? I think it was Keith. Writers are going up the escalator. Um, it's right there. But that's kind of where the 42 is. So would it be there? It's the Jackie Robinson rotunda with a statue of Seaver. Hmm. Is that where you want to put it? I don't know. Somebody else said put it down by the Mets bullpen. So in other words, um, that would be the right field side. You know, outside there, uh, like, you know, in San Francisco, they have the statue of William McCovey. But put it on the right field side by the bullpen for obvious reasons. Um, Don't know. What do you guys think of that? I want it in a common area, away from the rotunda, the interior of the rotunda. I want it to be accessible to all, whether you're going to the game or not. I want a tourist to be able to come from Manhattan on the train, get off, get alongside it, get its picture, and be gone. You know what I mean? I want this to be something accessible to all at all times when permissible. I don't want it inside. If you don't have a ticket, you can't get to it. You know, they hid the the, the home run apple out in right field. Nobody knew where the hell it was until everyone, you know, screamed and yelled, and they finally put it out front. Uh, that's all I'll say. Sam, sorry. I ranted. I I I'm trying to you know get my my uh, my Mets feet about me and picture the plaza, and I'm trying to think exactly where coming out of those stairs, which is a magnificent one of the best parts of of the entire city field uh, of design that they did was just having that entrance that subway exit. Uh, and and seeing the the stadium, it's 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 breathtaking when you do it. Uh, regardless of of our qualms that we've spoken about uh, of the details of City Field, that's lovely. And now with the home run apple there after the first year, it's even more spectacular. I think you got yeah you got to put it somewhere over there. Obviously, you need to keep the plaza open for traffic for foot traffic. So put it somewhere to the left. Put it somewhere to the right. But I think you got to put it somewhere in that plaza, whether it's it's somewhere with the the fan bricks that you haven't uh, uh, filled in yet, um, or right out in front near where all those you know all all those booths set up to try to sell stuff. That's really my take. It's got to be front and center, bottom line. I agree. I, I think you know. I'm sorry, Mike, but where the apple is, I think would be appropriate. But go ahead, Mike, I'm sorry. 
I would say, you know the seven Ps, proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Wherever they decide to put it, if they should decide to, you know, make one. I, I hope they do so with the intentions of more and having them all form some relation to each other. Maybe that's asking too much. <laughs> No, I mean you. You make a point, and and if we're if we're using San Francisco as a good example, I think they. Now, mind you, it's a it's a a more open. If anybody's ever been to San Francisco, you know, the the water is not 126th Street, if you will, but people do go over, especially when the rotunda is is, is crazy. People either go to left field, people go all the way around to the bullpen gate, uh, McFadden you know, has a big entrance. There's lines at the bullpen gate. There's lines at McFadden's uh, when we try to get there, especially on opening day. So, again, you know, the the statues uh, in San Francisco, they're scattered around the the edges of, uh, of, you know, the stadium. McCovey Cove, that's obviously where the statue is, and, and people traveled there to see, McCove, to see Willie McCovey. Um but again, that's not the chop shops or whatever's left of the chop shops over there, uh, which I actually found endearing, but that's a whole other story. Um, so, you know, I could see, uh, uh, you know, put Joan Payson over near left field. I think that would be appropriate. People do go over there. I go over there. Um, the one thing is that when you go around to the right field area, people do people do go over there, but that first area you know it sometimes gets blocked off for the players so that that is a little tricky um that's if we're talking about other statues rich well you know yeah who's saying that it has to stop at siever right and i agree with everything you guys are saying is that hopefully the siever statue will be the first one as well it should be and then there could be others. I mean, to me, number two, I know my, I, I believe Payson, yes. Uh, to me, number two should be Staub for all the philanthropic work he's done or, you know, had done. Um, so, but why not? I mean, why not have Seaver in, you know, I agree, outside the ballpark over around the right field there? I do think that's a really good idea, by the way. On the Mets side, right, the Mets occupy the, the first base side. So have the Seaver statue out there as the franchise. And, um and then maybe have a stop and a pace in one, and you know maybe have five, like you know throw, throw two on the left field there. side. I wouldn't mind Stengel too. I mean, like remember you know that little statuette in the Hall of Fame uh, of Stengel? I'd love a giant size of that. If we're really just like tossing people around here. I know the exact statue you're talking about. Oh, uh, look, some parks have them both inside and out. Philly has them inside and out. Pittsburgh has them inside and out. Uh, so. You know, it'd be it'd be fine if they get started. You know, and there's a lot they can correct by just doing the right thing. Uh, you know, Sam, I, I thought that excerpt from Skip Lockwood was was just fantastic. Why don't you wrap this up for us and take us home? Well, you know, I, I my last word is. My last word is awareness. Um, and I think that the Wilpons could seriously use some sort of fan ambassador within the organization. Uh, 
somebody who, uh, who, who is substantially more connected, other than the social media uh, people, um, other than the ticket sellers, you know, I, I just feel like there's somebody who uh, needs to understand the pulse of the fans in a better way than, than the Wilpons seem to do. And it, to me, that title would be fan ambassador. And I, I, I'm not trying to vie for the job here by saying this. I'm just saying that it would behoove them to have somebody going, not not just being out there on Twitter and, and understanding what the fans are talking about, but somebody who's who who has, excuse me, has been a fan and understands what not only what what you know what this this history is, but why we love this team, why we keep coming back and even throughout all of all of this this stuff and it, it, it's something other than the fact that they're the alternative to the Yankees it's it, it just it goes all the way back to 1962 the fans are what made this team when they outsold the Yankees in a year that the Yankees went to the World Series you know um, that I I might be mistaken about that but 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 generally speaking, in the 1960s, the Mets, who were awful until 1969, and literally awful until 1969, outsold the Yankees, who, were, who weren't bad until 1965. So I, I think that they need to understand that in a better way. And, you know, we've also talked about it. As much as we want everything to be uh, uh, Mets re- more Mets-related, um, and not just, you know, we, 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 we had issues as much as uh, especially you and I, Mike, uh, love our Brooklyn lineage. Um, we want them to understand their full legacy and, and, and acknowledge the Giants a little bit more as well, especially considering that, that, that the interlocking NY comes directly from the last type of, of hat that the, that the, the uh, Giants wore uh, and had different incarnations of that throughout their history prior to that fixed interlocking NY. So I, I, I just, I think that that the way to do that is some sort of fan ambassador who understands more than the Wilpons seem to do what this team is all about. Rich. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, that's a really good idea, Sam, to have some like a, a guest experience person, you know, like somebody who really owns that. And, um, and that would be a good idea. And I guess my last word for this one is, you know, amidst all the 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 good feeling, you know, that it's baseball season almost and there's real life action to talk about and we're able to watch it on TV and all that and gearing up for another season, which hopefully would be a good one, it's a sad day. It's a sad podcast as far as I'm concerned. It's It's been a sad few days in Metsville because the Seaver thing um, – you know, there's no turning back from that. You know, there's it's dementia. It, it's we all know what happens. I mean, it, it's um, it's just a, amidst the excitement of a new season and a young general manager and new players and all that. I don't know. That's my word. It's sad. It's just the sad feeling of um, of the Seavers of the Seaver thing. And I guess that's where I am. Oh boy, I was born in February '67. Two months later, Tom Seaver made his major league debut with the Mets. I have nothing but my sincerest well wishes to the Seaver family. 
Uh, and with that said, on behalf of Rich and Sam, I will say, let's go Mets, and all the best to let's go the Mets. franchise. Let's, let's go, go Mets. Mets. Be well, everyone. Be nice.